I'm sure you don't struggle with this, but did you know Americans have problems waiting? <laughs> did you know that? Did you know that we are impatient? In 2015, I think it was, Timex, the watch company, did a survey where they asked people how long they would wait before taking action in a variety of situations. And here are some of the things they found. Americans would only consent to wait 13 seconds before we honk at a car in front of us that stopped at a green light. I think that's pretty generous, don't you? 26 seconds before we shush people who are talking at a movie theater. 26 seconds before we take the seat of someone who's walked away. We'll only wait 45 seconds before we ask someone who's talking too loud on a cell phone to keep it down. We'll wait 13 minutes for a table at a restaurant, 20 minutes for a blind date to show up before we leave, and 20 minutes for the last person to show up for Thanksgiving dinner before we dig in. Now, some of those, I think they're pretty patient. And others, not so much. But we struggle with patience. We struggle waiting. According to Harmut Rosa in a book that he wrote that I'm not recommending, uh, it's based on uh, a bad theories, but he did some research and he, he applied the research in a bad way, but he did some research in which he compared today, and I think he wrote this book in 2013, he compared today with the, the, the pre-modern age. So uh, before 1453 or before 1500, that time. And he found that human movement has increased by a factor of 100. The speed of communication has increased by a factor of 10 million. And the speed of data transmission has increased by a factor of 10 billion. And that was 10 years ago. I'm sure those numbers are higher now. So as the speed with which we communicate and move around increases, the amount of patience we have decreases. You see the correlation? The more we have, the more we're impatient, the more speedy things are. And you know this is true. How many of you have Amazon Prime and are used to getting a package in two days? And if you have to wait any longer than that, you're just tempted to grumble like the, the Old Testament saints in the wilderness, aren't you? Because we don't get it soon enough. We have express checkouts, which sometimes aren't so express, but you go there because you want to expressly, quickly check out. We can communicate with each other instantly, overseas, or just in the next room. Heaven forbid that we text in the same room with people, but you and I both know that's happened. It's instantaneous. One of the, one of the phrases that has described this, uh, for many people, uh, 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 a proverb, if you will, is all things come to those who wait. You've heard that. You've probably used that. If you're a parent, I know you have used it. All things or all good things come to those who wait. We're trying to instill in people what when we tell them that? Patience. To be patient. To not take things always into our own hands. I did some research on, I, I love phrases like this in their history, and I did some research on the, on the phrase. Do you know that initially the person who is credited with this phrase didn't quite say it like that, but she actually used it as a negative. Um, 
Her name was, she was a poet, and she wrote in 1905, a British poet, Lady Mary Montgomery Curry, and she wrote under a pen name, Violet Fane, but she wrote this little phrase, Ah, all things come to those who wait. I say these words to make me glad, but something answers soft and sad, they come, but often come too late. So even in the way she penned it, she is lamenting that things don't come, how? When she wants them. We, of all people, are people, people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, are people who are equipped to wait, who have reason to wait, and can glory in our waiting because it's productive. And that's what the scriptures teach us. The scriptures teach us that we are to wait. It is the mark of living in this age, is it not? It's the mark of living between Jesus' first coming and the second coming. We are waiting. It was the mark of living in the old covenant as well. They waited for the Messiah. The Messiah has come, and now we look back to the coming of the Messiah, and we look forward to the second coming of Christ, and we still wait. And the waiting is profitable for us. So we, of all people, should be able to lead the way. Well, why is that the case? Why can we wait so well? Well, Isaiah wants us to understand that question. This morning, he wants us to understand that waiting is what we do if we serve the one true living God. Give us the reason for waiting and show us the profitability of that waiting. And by the end of this morning, by the end of chapter 25, we have the answers to all of those to equip ourselves to be those who wait with patience as we sing in several of our hymns. Turn to Isaiah chapter 25. Let's stand together as I read this chapter. O Yahweh, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade for the heat, for the breath of the ruthless like a storm against a wall, like a heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For Yahweh has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, 
This is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of Yahweh will rest on this mountain. And Moab shall be trampled down in his place. As straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But Yahweh will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill or trickery of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So if you remember from last week, we moved from that section of chapters 13 through 23 of the judgment against 10 nations, the oracles concerning 10 different nations. And there were more nations than 10 involved, including Judah and Israel. But we moved from those constant warnings of judgment against those nations. Therefore, God's people do not trust in them. Don't place your faith and trust in them. And then we moved last week into this midsection, chapter 24, 25, 26, and 27, and we have this wider picture now, not just the judgment of the nations, but the judgment of the world and the redemption of God's people, most of them with forward-looking ultimate fulfillments. And this week we have this wonderful chapter, chapter 25, in which we witness a hymn of praise recounting three actions of God and the responses of his people. Three actions of God and the responses of his people. The first action of God that we see is God acts and his people exalt him and praise his name. Look right there in verse 1 of 25. Oh Yahweh, you are my God. Does that catch you up a little bit? I kind of sat on that phrase a little while this week. How often do you approach God with that opening line? You are my God. We tend to lose that. We tend to lose that that focus that we are his and he is ours. He is our God and we are his people. And we enter in, rightfully so, oftentimes recounting, and we're taught this, right? We're taught this as adoration comes first, and we're entering into all those lofty characteristics of God and praising him for the characteristics, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I wonder whether starting with the fact that the God I'm about to give praise to is my God, how much that changes the way we approach that prayer. It it, it moves from the sterile and the systematic into the real and the relational, You are my God, Isaiah starts out. Now this song that is going to be developed here, and it's clearly a hymn of praise, has lots of connections with chapter 24, doesn't it? Because chapter 24, we have the remnant in verse 4. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of Yahweh. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, Give glory to Yahweh in the coastlands of the sea. Give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. So that there is this praise of the remnant that will happen even in the midst of the song of the, of the defeated world. Remember the song without joy, the song without the joy of wine and celebration. In fact, calling out to the Lord, we don't have any wine. 
because there's no joy because Yahweh has come against them in judgment. So this is the first glimpse of what Isaiah would see of the song of the remnant coming before us. We also see it tied to the last verse of chapter 24. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for Yahweh of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before the elders. So the glory of God and in the, at the place that he dwells. Remember, Mount Zion, whenever we see this idea of Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, that is often not just a geographical place, but is the place that, that Yahweh resides. It's where he lives with his people and his people approach him. And so his glory, because he is present, will be before his elders. I think that foreshadows the elders that are in Revelation who are doing the singing in Revelation. But it also says, remember earlier in Isaiah in chapter 3, 14 and chapter 9, 14 and 15, we had failed elders in the, in the nation of Israel. We had elders that absconded from their duty. We had elders that did things that elders weren't supposed to do. And God says, my glory will be before the elders, the ones that are in the mountain, the ones who have come to the mountain, the ones who are mine. And so it's all tied together as we move into chapter 25. Oh, Yahweh, you are my God. Well, why do his people praise and exalt him? If you'll notice in your text, in the middle of verse 1, at the beginning of verse 2, in the beginning of verse 4, we see these words, for, F-O-R. I think those mark out reasons and we might press it in a little bit more and say the first four gives reasons and the second and third four are two of the main reasons. We could do that as well. But I, I think all these give us the reasons that we are exalting and praising his name. Look at that second part. We exalt you. We, we lift you up. We know your character. We know who you are. And we exalt you and we praise your name. We give praises. We praise your name. Remember in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, a name is a way of talking about every characteristic of that person. So we think of all the characteristics of God and all his mighty works and we exalt him and we praise his name. That was the entry into this song of praise. And so we see these three reasons. First, we exalt him and praise his name for his wonderful works. Look at the second half of verse 1. For... You have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. So it is Yahweh, it is Yahweh who is our God, who has done wonderful things, wonderful works or wonderful deeds. And then the second half of it describes plans formed of old, and the wonderful deeds and the plans bring our minds back to Isaiah 9, 6, where we have the wonderful counselor, because that word for plans is, is very closely related to the Hebrew word for counselor. So his counsel, his wonderful counsel that he carries out, and look at what it says. It says that they are faithful and sure, or maybe your version says uh, faithful and faithful, or something like perfectly faithful. Two very closely related Hebrew words that are meant to be synonymous here. And, so, and, and if they're both nouns, it would be faithful and faithful. And we've looked at Hebrew literature enough, and especially poetic literature, to know that if we see something stated twice, it's emphasizing that. And if we see something stated three times, it's, it's, a, it's an uber-emphasis. Remember, holy, 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 saying he is the most holy. 
So this idea of this faithful and sure or faithful and faithful, the utmost in faithfulness. And I want you to see how these two lines work together. You have done wonderful things. And then the parallel tells us that this wonderful things are plans or counsel formed of old. Faithful and sure. So God planned them from beforehand and he's carrying them out and they're wonderful. Why are they wonderful? Because he is wonderful. And everything he does is good and right and just. And he planned them beforehand and no one can thwart them and he carries them out as he sees fit. Now we could spend two weeks just looking at this concept, could we not? The sovereign hand of God who is in charge of everything and has foreordained, foreordained everything that will happen and he knows everything that will happen and nothing can thwart him from his plans. So when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that God the Father is summing all things up in Christ, we know that what? It's never going to stop until all things are summed up in Christ. And we could go through every promise of God in the scripture and know that it was planned from days of old and he will faithfully, faithfully carry it out and he does it in our midst. And Isaiah is giving thanks for what he does. That's the first reason that he he says you are my God. And since we are God's people as well, we enter into that same praise, individually saying, God, we know that you have done wonderful works, plans, counsels formed from old, faithful and sure. He has a second reason, for he overcomes ruthless cities. Look at verses 2 and 3. For you have made the city. Now, in this little section, as well as many other times in Isaiah, what does the city refer to? Is it just a generic city? The city here, especially in 24, 25, 26, and 27, is the city of man. All of the city that's arraigned with all its powers against God. That is the city. And God has an express plan for the city that is brought out in 24, 25, 26, and 27. The city and the song are compared over and over. So here we have the city, that that world that's opposed to God, the people who are not God's people that that refuse to bow their knee, that refuse to come to Zion, as chapter 2 tells them that the nations will come and seeking from God how they should live. You have made the city a heap. The fortified city, a ruin. Remember, sometimes in our parallelism, they can, they can restate the same idea in a more intensive way, and that's what this parallelism is doing. The city now is a fortified city, and the heap is a ruin. It's intensifying this judgment of God, and this is God who has done this. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. So not only is it destroyed, but the hand of God remains against it for its disobedience. Verse 3, therefore strong peoples will glorify you. The strong peoples are the strong people who built the fortified cities, who, who, take their, who put their faith and their trust in their own strength and the cities that they have built. Strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Now this word ruthless is going to tie verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 together because you'll see it in each verse. <clears throat> In verse 3, we see it. In verse 4, we see it. And in verse 5, we see it. Not 6, but 3 through 5. So the ruthless cities, and that's important for us to see. The ruthless nations will fear you. Now, is this fear as in they've come to a knowledge of Yahweh and they come to the mountain and they worship him? Or is this a fear because they see him work and they are devastated? They are brought into a heap. They are destroyed. And I think it's the latter. 
It could be the former, but I would expect to see something about the change in the city and their leaders if it was, if it was that they came to salvation. But they see these great and wonderful works of God, plans from of old, faithful and sure, carried out. And one of the ones that Isaiah brings to our mind is the city of man, no matter how strong it is, no matter how arrogant they are, no matter how sure of themselves they are, no matter how much earthly control they have at this moment, God will give them their due. And they will bow before him because they fear him. They have nowhere else to turn. It will be like in Philippians chapter 2 where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not everyone will be going to heaven, but everyone will bow before the sovereign king. Some on their way to eternal punishment, some to eternal life with Christ. Now the second four is tied to this. It is the third reason to give, or the third four here in verse 4. It's tied to the reasons to exalt and praise his name, but it is also a a continuation of God's action toward these cities. For, and this is where we move into the third promise, or the third um, reason, for he is a stronghold and fortress to those in need. Very closely tied to verse 3. For you have been a stronghold to the poor. Now, the mighty cities are fortified. Right? They have built fortified strongholds in which they trust, and those wicked, ruthless leaders are persecuting those who are poor, those who are needy, because they don't have the funds to stand up against them. They don't have the, the power. They don't have the authority. They don't have the stature. But that doesn't mean they're left alone, because when God destroys those fortified cities, it's clear to those who lead it and lead those cities that he has always been for the poor and the needy. And those who they oppressed, he has always been the God who is on their side. Look how it's put. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. So no matter what happens, God is always there for those who are in need, those who have humble hearts before him, those who can't defend themselves. This is why it's so prominent in Scripture for the leaders of God's people and God's people to give care and comfort to those who are poor and needy, those who are the downtrodden. It is the heart of God to do that, and so it's the heart of God's people to do that as well. And when God destroys those fortified cities, the leaders bow before him in fear because not only did they see their cities destroyed, but those they oppressed have been undergirded because he is their fortress. He is their stronghold. He uses these wonderful terms in here for a breath, the shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. We see a continuation of this verse in, in verse 4, for the breath of the ruthless... There we have again, the same people described again as ruthless, is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. The storm isn't going to have any power against the wall. The heat isn't going to have any power against the dry place. They're already dry. They don't need water. And it's useless. All of the the breath of the ruthless is just, it comes to nothing. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, as the song of the ruthless is put down. In the same way that being out in the sweltering heat, if you've ever been out in a field in 105 degree heat working, baling hay or something like that, um, maybe I'm speaking to some of your worst nightmares. There are some of mine of being out as a, as a young chi- younger child, baling hay and walking beans, and we just wait for the cloud to come in front of the sun. Because when the cloud came in front of the sun, there was relief. 
And it was tangible. Now, it may not have dropped the temperature that much, but we felt it immensely. And that's the imagery that is used of the wrath of these wicked people, the ruthless people. God has subdued them all. And the song of the ruthless is put down. And I think this repetition of ruthless helps us see that they're not bowing in salvation. They're bowing in fear of the Lord because he has acted against them. And they had nowhere else to go because their trust was in themselves and their walls and their strength and not in Yahweh himself. Well, this is encouraging to us, is it not? In one sense, we know the future. Even in the midst that we are in right now where we see so many wacky things going on and we don't know what's going to happen next and we either don't turn on our news anymore or we turn it on and we're just dumbfounded by the next thing that we see somebody said or did. But we know the future. We, we, we know what's going to happen. We know that eventually, in God's timing, if we wait, God will do what he will do against the fortified cities. And they have no power over him. And we are his people. We are the ones that he is our fortress. He is our refuge. He is our strength. And we can predict the future in the sense that we know, if not in our lifetime, before Christ, before or as Christ returns, these wicked cities will be torn into a rubble. They will just be brought down because God will not be cowed to the arrogant of the earth. And we're going to see that theme of arrogance tied in through this passage. In 1900, a German chocolate company released 12 postcards predicting what life would be like 100 years in the future. You want to know what they'd said in 1900 about what 2000 would bring? Personal airships, a picture of couples flying around in their personal hot air balloons. They said that would happen. Watching a live drama performance while not in the theater. Kind of like TV, maybe. An x-ray machine for police officers to detect crimes in progress within buildings. A roofed city, like a football stadium. Underwater ships for tourists, so we can go on a submarine and go take a tour. Easy excursions to the North Pole. A machine for creating good weather. They almost got it all right, didn't they? Now, that was pretty close in 1900 to have a good imagination. Well, we don't need imagination, do we? we? We have a sanctified reality that God says he will deal with the wicked. He will deal with those who oppress his people. And we're going to find out that he'll re- remove the reproach of all the evil people and what they have done against God's people. God is in control, and he will not be mocked. So there's great comfort. Just If we just stopped in verse 5, We would take great comfort to know that this God, who is sovereign over all things, who's planned it all from the beginning, is faithful and sure in the way that he carries it out. He is out to destroy his enemies and protect his people. And we can meditate there for hours and hours, but Isaiah doesn't let us. The second act and response, act of God and the response of his people. God speaks and his people live in his blessing. Here in the middle, in verses 6, 7, and 8, we see these great truths. For he is a great feast giver, and he is the great death eater. What an amazing picture is given here in verse 6. On this mountain, mark that, that's key. In Old Testament prophecy, that is so key to realize that where the mountain is, that's where God is, and that's where his people are. 
And you'll see that mountain is in verse 6. It's in, the, it's in the end of the first phrase of verse 7. And we also see it again at the end of the first phrase of verse 10, which all of those verses, all the way up to the first part of verse 10, are talking about God and his people, even though we have it separated because of the way the text flows. The mountain, the mountain, the mountain guides this. On this mountain, the place where God dwells and his people dwell with him, Yahweh of hosts will make for, now I want you to look at this, all peoples, look at verse 7, the second, section, the second part of it, all peoples, the next line in verse 7, all nations, the second line in verse 8, all faces, the third line in verse 8, all the earth. So this whole section is talking about all the people with all the faces of all the earth. And you say, well, wait a minute, didn't we just find out some of the earth is going to be destroyed? Yes, and this section is dealing with all the people, all the people, all the nations, all the people groups that are where? On the mountain, on the mountain, those who are Christ's in the new covenant language, those who come to Yahweh the mountain of Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples, that is, from all people groups, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, of, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine fully refined, well refined. This is the most poetic way to say this is the best food at the best banquet that could ever be given. And banquets were a mark of celebration, celebration of victory, celebration of acts of the king, celebrations of a nation that does something. Banquets, and they would go on sometimes for days. So this is, this is an old covenant way of talking about a celebration given by the one worthy of being celebrated at the banquet. And since he is the one who gives it, everything is of the best quality. It says that the same kinds of words, it's so poetic in the Hebrew. If you could just have listen to someone read it, it's so poetic in the way the words bounce off of each other, the way Isaiah is telling us how luscious this banquet is. We sit before our mind's eye and we think of the food and drink that will be available at this, and our mouths water. We salivate. We think this food is better than any food we've ever made, even from Mama's Kitchen. Even from the best restaurant we've ever been to, this is better. And yet we're not just talking about food that we put in our mouth, are we? We're talking about the spiritual blessings of those who are on Mount Zion. And this idea is carried through. And we'll see how it's carried through in a minute. But it's carried through into our celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's carried through in some parables in the New Testament. It's carried through in the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. The same picture that those who are in Christ, those who are God's people, will feast forever in a way that this world could never provide. And I do think there will be a physical banquet that we set out with food, but I also think all the way through scriptures, it is a picture of our spiritual sustenance that we have. We have everything that we need because we do not live by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is these promises that we're seeing right here in chapter 25. It is the reality that the Messiah has come and lived and died and died on that cross and was raised again after he was buried and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That reality, when we come to the Lord's Supper, that's what we are celebrating. We are remembering the work and we're looking forward to when he comes back again and we are feeding on spiritual truths, actually truly feeding upon them in our spirit. And that's what's being talked about here in verse 6. For he, Yahweh, is the great feast giver. 
but he is also the great death eater. Look at verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. He will swallow up death forever. Aren't we the people who stand and scream hallelujah there? Isn't it wonderful that's right in the center of the text that God swallows up death. The consequence of the fall is death entering into the world, spiritual and physical, and Yahweh acts to swallow it all up in the coming of the Messiah and his perfect work. Now, we look at these ways and We might look at this. I want you to look at verse 7 and the first phrase of verse 8 and see that he will swallow up and he will swallow up, bracket those phrases. So in the middle, we have covering that is cast and a veil that is spread over all nations and all peoples. Now, some people would say that those are pictures of ignorance and blindness. And we see that language in Scripture, some don't we? We'll see it in Isaiah, that he has come to bring a light to those who are blind. So is he talking about a veil of blindness and a veil of ignorance, a covering, a shroud of ignorance that is going to be lifted so that they will see the truths of Yahweh? And I think all of this is pointing, it could be that, and we know that's true. The question is, is Isaiah saying that with these phrases in the middle of the swallow-up phrases? I think they're all talking about death, the, the, the covering and the veil the veil that's pulled over someone who dies in this life and is no longer breathing, the covering, the, the burial cloth that is used. They're no longer needed anymore. Why? Because the first phrase is, he will swallow up on this mountain. And the last phrase, he will swallow up death, the first phrase of verse 8. And he does it forever. Now that tells us we're talking about a final act, doesn't it? If we're talking about sometime in the future that that is finally and fully completed, and we know it's not swallowed up forever yet because people still die. So it's sometime in the future. And we'll sum all this up in Christ in just a moment. So he is this, the one who is the death eater. He swallows up death and he does it through his Messiah. Now let me just clarify here. Every single person who lives on the face of the earth will live forever. We have these people who are trying to be into cryogenics and things like that, that they preserve you know, themselves or parts of themselves so that they'll live forever because they have this misconception that this world is all there is. And so they want to live forever. I just want to say, hey, save your millions. Save your billions that you're putting into all that. I can tell you already because I know the future. You're going to live forever. The question is, where will it be? Will it be separated from God and in in eternal punishment forever? Or will it be in the presence of God with eternal joy at the banquet? That's the question. People live in this life as if it's all that there is, and when they die, they turn to dust, and that is not the teaching of the New Testament. It's not even the teaching of the Old Testament, as we'll see a little bit next week. Every one of us will live forever because God, through Christ, swallows up death. But God through Christ, will also judge the wicked and save those who are his. So the place that you will spend your eternal life is what is in question while you live and breathe today. So where are you? 
Have you come to a place where you trust in Christ and not your own fortified city that you build around yourself? Where you trust in the wisdom of God instead of your own wisdom? Where you're trusting in him instead of your finances or or your status or anything else? Have you come to that place where you walk away from your own city, which will be destroyed? It's what we just learned. And have you come to the mountain, as Hebrews says, the place of the living God? We are those people who come to the mountain, the place of the living God. So if you have not come to the point where you confess your sins, turn away from those, repent of those sins, and trust in Christ instead of your own city, your eternal life will be spent in a place that's separated from the God that's exalted in the scriptures. Today is the day of your choice. Today. Don't let the sun go down before you make your choice. Well, the third act of God... And response of his people begins in verse 9. God saves and his people rejoice. It will be said on that day. So we see this phrase over and over in the prophets and in Isaiah. So in verse 9 when it says on that day. It is the day that death is swallowed up forever. It is the day that the feast begins in earnest. It will be said on that day. This is said by the people of God. Behold, this is our God. Now there's the phrase from verse 1 that one person says, magnified by the body of Christ, is it not? Everyone saying, now this is our God. This God who is the great feast giver, the great death eater, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. So this is a past act, past act. We've waited for him so that he might save us. But then the very next line, this is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So his salvation has come. Salvation comes to those who wait on the Lord. And this is right here at the center, remind, the God's people reminding that on that day, you will just give thanks to God for your salvation. You waited on him, he brought it, and you will praise him for eternity. That is the marching orders of everyone who comes to Christ. That's what we will do for eternity, is give praise and honor to Christ. We'll worship him face to face. And the primary way we'll thank him for that, first and foremost, is you are our God. We waited on you, and you saved us. And now that death is swallowed up, we can live eternally with you because you've swallowed that death up unto eternal life with you. It's a glorious time. What does it mean just to wait on the Lord? This is a common theme in Scripture. It's a common theme to wait. And I just want to bring our minds around what Scripture says, not everything it says about waiting, You do have lunch or dinner plans. I'm not sure which one you'll make yet, but you do have plans for later. We just want to just contemplate what it means to wait on God. Because if this is the God who has acted in these ways and is faithful and will destroy the city of man and preserve the city of God and everything he does is faithful and sure, shouldn't we be ones who wait on him for whatever he wants to do? It's our calling. Psalm 25 Make me to know your ways, O Yahweh. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. So according to Psalm 25, as we're waiting, we're asking God to make known his ways, his paths, and to lead me in his truth and teach me about him 
because he's the God of our salvation and we wait on him all the day long. Later on in that same chapter, verse 21 and 20, 20 and 21, oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not put let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. My integrity and my uprightness, uprightness preserves me, for I wait on you. So when we're waiting on the Lord, we're seeking his paths, his revelation of his paths and his truths, and we're asking him to teach us, then we're waiting on him, and that produces an integrity and a righteousness that proves that we are actually in Christ. You see what the waiting does? Waiting is what we do. It's how we live is waiting on the Lord. Psalm 27, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living. Wait for Yahweh. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for Yahweh. Our belief is that we will spend eternity with him in the land of the living. So now be strong. Take courage. Let your heart take courage because that's the definition of a believer who waits on God. Psalm 37, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. We just learned that from Isaiah 2. But those who wait for Yahweh shall inherit the land. Wait for Yahweh and keep this way and he will exalt you and inherit and you will inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. So our waiting in Yahweh, we are waiting for the land that's better than this. We're like Abraham, whose heart is set on the land that, that is, whose builder and foundation is God. We're not set for this land. We're set for the new heaven and new earth. So waiting on him gives us the, the ability to enjoy his gifts, but not get caught up in this world because we're waiting on the better, the best. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for Yahweh. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in Yahweh. Do you see all the things that happen when we wait patiently on Yahweh? When we're waiting on God, are we just passive? Well, so far we've seen that we're strong, we're courageous, we're learning from him, we're being taught by him, we're learning his paths. But now we know that we're praying to him and he hears us when we're waiting on him. Because when we're waiting, we're saying, I want what you want, not what I want. I, I want how you want this story to end, not the way I want it to end. And so when we do wait on him, he inclines our ear to us. He hears our cry. And then he draws us up out of the pit of destruction He's our fortress, right? He's our stronghold. He's our refuge. We just learned that in Isaiah. Psalm 52. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. So there is the city of man. But... I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever, and I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. So we look distinctively different than the world because we're waiting on a God who is sovereign, who is full of good gifts to act. Psalm 130, a familiar psalm. I wait for Yahweh, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. 
My soul waits for Yahweh more than watchmen in the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. So while we're waiting, we're in his word. We're immersed in it. Proverbs 20. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for Yahweh, and he will deliver you. This echoes Paul's words in Romans 12, 19, doesn't it? Beloved, never uh, avenge yourselves, but give a place in the ra- to the wrath of God. As it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So one of the things we do when we wait is we give vengeance to the Lord. We don't take things in our own hand. We don't make other people pay. We don't pronounce the sentence in the judgment. God is the one. And, it, it, Roman, and Paul, Romans tells us to leave room for, to leave a place for the wrath of God because it will be exercised in his timing. Remember, what is he? He is the God who does wonderful works, planned beforehand of, of old, those counsels that were, are faithful and sure. He will do it. So while we wait, we let him be God, and we are spending time in be, uh, obeying him rather than trying to make other people pay for how they've hurt us or how they've wronged us. Isaiah 26, we'll see this tomorrow, next week. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Yahweh, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our souls. So even when we're living in this world and God is about the business of judging evil, we're waiting on him doing all the things that we're lining up now in a row that are marks of us waiting because he is a sovereign God. Isaiah 32, oh Yahweh, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble, waiting tied to salvation. Now, let's just flesh this last little part out about salvation. We come to spiritual salvation because we have trusted in God and what he has done in Christ. And we've repented of our sins and trusted in him. We have waited on that, not to try to save ourselves, but we have waited on the Lord. But also, the word salvation is used in just saving in everyday acts, is it not? Just saving us from everyday evil, saving us from from getting caught up in temptation, saving us from getting caught up in evil things. That salvation is what is constantly being fought against as we fight sin. And so as we're waiting, we're fighting sin. This is all part of the waiting. This is why the martyrs under the throne in Revelation 6 can cry out to God and say, when will the time come that you avenge our blood? And he says what? Wait a little longer. And they are the ones who have already washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And they wait. Waiting is a mark of a strong and faithful believer. Isaiah 40 They who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. So when we wait on the Lord doing all these things, do I need to recount them again? I know you're getting bored with the list, but I could go on for another hour. Am I making my case? Waiting is a mark of a faithful believer. And when we wait, we are not idle. We are trusting him. We are basking in his word. We are... We are waiting for him to teach us in the paths of righteousness. We're we're waiting for him to lift us out of pits. We're waiting for him to exact vengeance on other people instead of us. We wait and we're active. We wait and we're faithful. We wait and we're obedient. Why? Because God is sovereign and he is carrying out his will in his timing, in his way. He is faithful, he is sure, and he will not be thwarted. And we are waiting. And I won't read the other eight verses I have. How's that? And that's only part of them. 
We've already talked about creation, waiting, awaiting the salvation of the sons of men. 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul commends those in Thessalonica because those in Macedonia and Achaia have heard about their faith, and this is what they've heard. They've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So by definition, when we come to faith in Christ, we come to faith, and this is how the Thessalonians' faith was described. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son who is coming. So in this verse here in the middle of our passage talks about waiting on God for he that he might save us and praising him because he has saved us. That is a picture of our life, our sanctification. And it's full of wonderful and beautiful treasures for us to be involved in while we wait on him to act instead of to have our own supposed sovereign hand in our life do what we want. Well, returning back to Isaiah 25, God saves his people. God saves and his people rejoice. He saves those who wait on their God. But look at verse 10. Verse 10 sums it up. For the hand of Yahweh will rest on this mountain. Now, a lot of times we see the hand, it's the, it's the judgment, but hand just really refers to the power of God. Sometimes it's expelled in judgment, sometimes it's expelled in protection. And that's what's described here is waiting on the Lord, his salvation that he brings, the, the great feast giver, the great death eater, that is a picture of the hand resting on his mountain with all the people therein who come to God on his terms. But he not only saves those who wait on their God, he destroys those who trust in their pompous pride. Look at the second phrase of verse 10. And Moab shall be trampled down in his place. So that kind of fits a little weird here, doesn't it? We've been talking about the, uh, this, this long picture of history and God saving his people and judging his enemies. And now we return to this Old Testament foe of Israel, Moab. And I think what Moab is here, we'll see this as we go through, Moab is the picture of every prideful nation and all of its people. It's the quintessential picture. Because we've already learned about Moab and his pride, and we'll see that here too. And Moab shall be trampled down in his place. And notice the difference here. The hand of blessing is on his people, but the foot of destruction is on his enemies. You see that? It's the hand of God in blessing, and it's the foot of God in destruction for those who are pride. He'll be trampled down in his place. How? What does this look like? As a straw, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it. So get this picture. The picture of a barn full of dung and straw being put over it and people walking on it trampling it down. It's in that that Moab still tries to express his pride, even in the midst of God's hand of judgment. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But Yahweh will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill, or some of your versions might say trickery. It's the only place this, this word happens in, the, in, in Hebrew in the Old Testament, so we're not sure what it means. But, it, but we do know the gist of it is that it's his own doing. 
It's his own skill or his own trickery of his hands because that is the pompous pride that God is, is going to squish. And we've already learned in 16.6 um, this phrase. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence, and his idle boasting. It is not right. So this is a picture of all those enemies of God. It's coming full circle again to the destruction that God promises to bring and finishes it in verse 12. In the high fortifications of his walls, he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. That's, the, that's a different way of saying the same thing he says about the city of man in verse 2. Brings us full circle. Now all of this, I want you to turn to one place. This is the last place that uh, that I don't know if I've had you turn yet, but you are going to turn now to the only place, Isaiah 55. A little more flesh is put on this in Isaiah 55 that points us toward Christ and the fulfillment of all of Isaiah 25. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to read part of it, starting in verses 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me, diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Do you see how the food metaphor, richness of the banquet, is brought immediately to its ultimate truth of salvation and God being faithful to his own covenant to redeem those who are true sons of David, the true seed of David through the one son. Now look at verse 6. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I have sent it. And when we see in chapter 25, we are saying in the middle of chapter 25, we're reminded in the end of verse 8, for Yahweh has spoken. And if this is what he speaks, it will come to pass because his word never comes back void. And it all points to Christ. Christ as the death eater in 2 Timothy 1.10. When Christ appeared, he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 25 and 26, for Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
And then the verses part that we that we heard uh, read this morning that when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 quotes that passage in the center of Isaiah 25. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ who is the death eater. He is the one who swallows it up on behalf of, and leads to eternal life on behalf of those who will trust in him. He is the feast giver. The, the prodigal son welcomes, is welcomed back by his father because, he says, my son was dead and is alive, and he was lost and was found. The same thing we will see in in Revelation 19 as we see the marriage supper of the Lamb of all those who were redeemed. But he is also the tear remover and shade provider in Revelation 7 and 21. The innumerable worshipers worshipers in chapter 7 from every nation, tribe, peoples, and languages, the alls of 25 in Isaiah, who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, quote, are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more, because he's the great feast giver. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. He's the shade provider. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is what we do when we remember Christ in the Lord's Supper. And we have that that wonderful phrase in in, um, 1 Corinthians 11. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He purchases all of this in his death and his resurrection. Now... If all that is true, how do we respond? If this is all true of our God, and we are called to wait on him, the faithful one, who carries out everything that he plans and is intended from the foundation of the world, and he carries it out faithfully. He has provided for his people to give them salvation, to give them that present, him in his presence and them in our presence forever, And he's provided that for us. And there will be no evil in that place. And all tears will be wiped away. And we know that those promises are yet to be fulfilled completely. How is it that we should respond? We must respond. If this is our God and we are told to wait on him, we must respond. So will you proclaim him far and wide, both to him and to others as Your God, my God, and when we're together, our God. Will that be the words on our lip? And when we praise his name, that's everything about his character. Are we ready and prepared to have that be? While we wait, what fills our mouth is the praise of his name. Are you willing to exalt and praise his name? Are you willing to wait on him? Are you willing, as you wait, to trust him to demolish into a heap the strong city of the world that's opposed to him? And that includes the city we live in now. Are you willing, until he demolishes the city of man, to trust him as our stronghold, our shelter, 
And when we are in need or in distress or pummeled by storms, to still trust and wait in him. And no other solutions, no other self-help solutions, no other, no other uh, means of some spirituality that is supposed to raise you up closer to God, not get caught up in anything else. We, we are a self-help world. Every time we turn around, somebody's trying to tell us how to fix our problems. When the Bible tells us Christ has fixed them, we just have to wait. We have to wait on him to do it in his timing. Are you willing? Are you willing to feed daily upon his word, his promises, and his son, the ultimate death eater? We saw that in the Psalms. And I could have shown you more places that while we wait, we feed. We're taught by him. We learn his paths. We understand what righteousness is. We want to be the olive trees that are growing, the trees planted by streams of water. That's what we do while we wait. We're not passive. Are you willing to feed daily? Are you willing to wait on the Lord not only for salvation, but for each of his wonderful works and plans formed of old, faithful, and sure? If he's working in this way, what right do we ever have to take our own life into our own hands? Because he's doing it as he sees fit. Are you willing that when we experience sorrow or fear or worry or anxiety over the ways of the city of man, to instead be glad and rejoice in his salvation. May that be the mark of our lives, to be glad and rejoice in the salvation that God has given us in Christ so that we are marked out as those who are the property of, purchased by the great feast giver and the great death eater. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the constant truths that are brought to us, even in Isaiah where we see judgment and judgment and judgment, and yet we still see the constant promise to the remnant that you will work and you will act. So we in this season, Father, we come together and we behold the mystery of the Son of God born in a manger, born that he may die, die so that he might be buried and be buried so that he might be raised again, and seated and enthroned at your right hand, would you teach us today even more that because of all the truths we see, even in Isaiah 25, our lives should be marked by joyful praise while we wait. We wait for the return of Christ to take us to the new heaven and the new earth because we're tired of crying and we long for that day. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, as we